If you'll turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 2, I would appreciate it. We're going to continue in the 11 verses of chapter 2. Uh, oh, okay. There you go. Now, the title of our study today, as you see on your little guide there, and by the way, I sent a minimal guide. They printed it correctly, and there's plenty of space, so if you want to write a little as we go, great. I hope you have some room, because I'll be saying a whole lot more than what is on that sheet, and so uh, you might want to use it just as a note reference and put whatever you want in terms of notes there. But you'll see that the title of the study is A Sign with Wine. Uh, I told you February 17th that I was tempted to entitle it The Making of a Good Merlot. But that would assume it was red wine instead of white wine, and I don't know what color the wine was. I'm, I'm guessing it was red, but that would only be a guess because Scripture doesn't say. So I'm just putting a sign with wine, okay? Because it is a sign. By the way, uh, last time, I'll give you a brief review here. Last time, verse 11, look what it says. And this beginning of miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. And notice the beginning of miracles. And last time I told you that word in verse 11 reminded me of Acts 2.20 where the scripture uh, is recorded saying about Jesus that he performed miracles, wonders, and signs. So all three of those words we looked at in our first study, February 17th. If you'll remember, the word miracles is in English. We call it dunamis. That's the English transliteration of the Greek word. Uh, we get the word dynamite from it. It's the idea of power. And the word miracle or dunamis in scripture refers primarily to the actions of God. In other words, it's what he does. Anytime God works, it's a miracle. Anything God does, it's miraculous. It's in his nature. He's the miracle worker. The second word in Acts 2.20 that we looked at, this is all review, remember, was the word teros or wonders. And that's a word which speaks of the awesomeness of God. It's kind of like the atmosphere that's created when God acts. It's an awesome thing. So it's a wonder to behold. And then, of course, the third word in Acts 2.20 we looked at is the word sim, uh, uh, simeon which is the word sign. And that's a word which is speaking of the authentication of God. So you have the actions, you have the awesomeness, and you have the authentication of God himself in all of the realm of the miracles and signs and wonders. And by the way, the Gospel of John is the record of seven miracles. Jesus did some 37, if you were to put them all together, during his time of ministry. But the fact is, John only mentions seven of them. And by the way, this miracle, John is the only one of the four Gospels that talks about it. But it's one of those that was a sign thing. In other words, it was authenticating God present. And that's why John recorded it. 
Anytime you see a miracle in the Gospel of John, you can immediately say, hmm, that's there to show that God is acting, to show that God is present. And John is the Gospel that shows Jesus in his divine nature, dwelling in his human nature, acting like who he is. God and as a man submitted to the purpose of the Father. We talked about that. So what we saw last time was simply this. No one need be surprised that Jesus performed miracles because he was God in human flesh, right? And when God acts, it's a miraculous thing. So don't be surprised that Jesus worked miracles because God was in him working miracles, miraculously. And the final one, of course, was the resurrection itself, which was the ultimate miracle of God that proves his acceptance of all who, uh, that Jesus did and all that Jesus was uh, on the cross and so on on our behalf. And so John records seven miracles. But we re remember that you don't have to be surprised that Jesus did them because he was God. And by the way, we also looked at the fact that when Jesus worked miracles in the Gospels, uh, there's no indication that he suspended the laws of nature. In other words, God didn't work a miracle, it seems to me, as we read the text of the scripture, by suspending the laws of nature. When Peter stepped out on the water, the reason he didn't sink under was because of a miraculous work of God. Now, he looked away, and God in his providence allowed the sinking, and Peter cried out, and Jesus lifted him up, but they walked back on top water back to the boat but none of the other disciples got out. And unless God had purpose to do something miraculously, had they gotten out, they would have sunk. Why? Because he doesn't suspend the laws of nature to perform miracles. He introduces, we saw last time, February 17th, he introduces a new cause and a new effect. If I were to hold my Bible up and drop it, natural law says gravity is going to fall. If I reach with my hand and catch it and raise it up, I haven't defied the law of nature. I haven't suspended the law of nature. I've simply introduced a new cause, my hand catching, and a new effect, my hand raising. That's what a miracle is. God just steps into the natural world doing supernatural things with a new cause that is himself and a new effect whatever he's purposing in that miracle. Does that make sense? We looked at that last time. I'm only reminding you. And if you weren't here and you wonder what I'm talking about now, I don't have time to explain it. We're going to have to go on to the miracle, okay? The last thing is this. We saw last time that there are two realms of reality. There's the natural world, that's us. We see each other sitting in chairs, all that kind of stuff. Then there's the supernatural world. That's the world we don't see. Uh, God is spirit dwelling in that area. Now he lives right here. He's master of time and space and all of it. But the fact is, there is a supernatural dimension that accords with his nature, that is spirit. And we don't have the capacity to see. Uh, there are fallen spirits, angels. There are unfallen spirits, uh, guardian angels and others. So there's a supernatural world that the world knows nothing about. 
two ladies and I were talking earlier a moment ago about demonization and, and so on. And a lot of people say, oh, well, I don't know. I've never seen anything like that. You bet you haven't. Uh, now, you may have seen the end result of demonization, but you've never seen the demon unless he's embodied himself. And generally, uh, he doesn't let you, he doesn't whisper in your ear, now this, I'm really a demon in this person. What he does, he tries to get you to think it otherwise. You, you understand what I'm saying? But when we begin, we begin to get spiritually attuned to the natural realm, because we understand the reality and the power of the supernatural realm, we recognize that our enemy is not flesh and blood, but it's supernatural, right? And that's the enemy that we're in battle against, and only Christ himself, God in human flesh, uh, giving the authority of the written sacred word, can we use those weapons of warfare against the enemy, okay? Now, the natural and supernatural realm, what we said last time is this. This is my opinion only. But I have a sneaking suspicion that the difference between the natural realm, that's us right here, right now, and the supernatural realm, that's God, where he is and everybody's with him, is not separated by distance as much as by dimension. In other words, when Stephen was being stoned to death, he looked and saw Jesus standing at the throne. Now, there's no indication anybody else saw Jesus. Stephen did. Why? Because God was acting miraculously. He opened the canopy of the supernatural realm, and Stephen saw the Lord Jesus. Now watch. Nobody else did. God gave him the privilege of, of seeing. But he didn't have a telescope. He didn't have binoculars. It's because the separation of the natural and supernatural realms is not as much a matter of distance as dimension. So that when the angel was sent to announce to Mary the birth of Jesus, don't think of Gabriel coming past the galaxies and the sun and the stars and the moon coming to earth and after a laborious journey getting here. And No, think rather of God supernaturally opening the spiritual realm and Gabriel being in the presence of Mary. Does that make sense? Remember the Old Testament? The prophet and his servant were in this hideaway in the mountains, and the enemy was coming, and the, prophet, the servant was scared to death. And he went out, and he saw all the enemy camped around. And he went in and said, oh, we're done for. We're dead ducks. But that, that's the Burleson translation. He used a little different language. And the, the, the prophet said, Lord, show him. And the scripture says, the curtain was separated, and angels were encamped all around the enemy. And the prophet was simply saying to his servant, it's okay. We've got someone on our side in that realm. Well, none of that was done with binoculars or telescopes. It wasn't looking way off yonder. It was a matter of dimension instead of distance. Now, that's all I talked about. That's all I'm going to say today. Ramifications of that are incredible. Uh, we'll talk about it one of these days, maybe even next week a little bit, but we're going to leave it there because last time I did not get back to the miracle. 
And I promised you the next time I taught, I would do that. So I want to keep my promise. We're coming now to the miracle of changing the water to wine, okay? And it's the first miracle to indicate that God was in Christ doing all of this wonderful stuff, miraculous stuff that was being, do being done, okay? So three things we're going to look at. And the first one is this, the motive for this miracle. Why in the world did he do it? Now, the indication is he had not ever performed a miracle before. The indication of the Greek language is he had not ever performed a miracle before. So if you're one of those that believes when Jesus was growing up, some kids bullied him, uh, he... Uh, took a stone and would have stoned them, but God turned the stones into birds and flew. That, I mean, that's good stuff to read and so on. I just don't personally hold to that. I believe this is literally, as the scripture said, the first miracle that he performed, okay? And the reason he's doing it is because he's announcing his ministry is beginning. By the way, the first chapter of John is the first week of that ministry. The last chapter of John is the last week of his ministry. So John reads, writes the first week and the last week and all the three years in between. Now it says on the third day in verse 1 of John 2. Did you notice that on the third day? Now that does not mean the third day after his baptism. He was baptized in the chapter before by John the Baptist, but it doesn't mean three days later because the other three Gospels record that when Jesus was baptized, he went immediately into the wilderness and was tempted by the devil for 40 days. So now he's back from the wilderness and he is beginning his ministry of calling disciples and doing stuff, you know, and presenting to the world the kingdom of God and who he is and what he's doing, all this. And he begins it uh, on the third day, which is probably a reference to the third day of the week. Okay? And he performs the miracle. That is changing the water to wine. Now, why did he do it? Well, somebody says it's obvious, Brother Paul. He was a nice kid, and his mom asked him to, and so he did. There is a system of theology built around that. Yeah. In other words, if you pray to Mary and ask her to influence Jesus, he will. Okay? And it's built on this. I respect people who hold to that, have no quarrel with anybody. I differ on how Jesus approached this thing with his mother. His mother really did want him to. But notice Jesus said, woman, what have I to do with you? Now, uh, don't get the idea that that's mean, that Jesus was putting her down. He was not. English doesn't always do justice to the Greek language. Uh, I don't know whether you know what an idiom is or not. You know what an idiom is? It's a, it's a, it's a word or a phrase that becomes a picture of something that you mean. Like, for instance, boy, that blew my socks off. Well, you don't mean that it blew your socks off. Can you get a picture of somebody huffing and puffing until the socks roll off and pop off your feet? You see, that's not what, that's an idiom. 
blowing his socks off. I have a friend. I won't even say it. I would start telling what Bobby says. All I'm not going to. But anyway, that that's not quite appropriate for this morning. My friends sometimes say a lot that's not quite appropriate for a Sunday morning. So anyway, uh, that's an idiom. So when Jesus said woman, he didn't even use the word uh, that we use for woman in Greek. It's an idiom in the Greek language. Here's the word best stated, I think. It's probably more like our word ma'am. Ma'am, what have I to do with you? Now, he's not putting her down as much as distancing himself from her in human nature because he is beginning to put on display his divine nature, who he really is in the purposes and in the providence of God. So it is not yet my time. What? Ma'am, why is this my business is what he's really saying. I have a greater business than this. Okay? But he goes on and changes the water to wine. It is his first miracle. So he chooses to do it. But notice not everybody knew it was done. The governor of the feast didn't know it. Uh, the governor is not like the governor of the state. The governor of the feast in verse 9 uh, is the guy that they looked at as the head honcho, the fellow in charge, the uh, master of ceremonies, or maybe even a little stronger than that. He was the guy in charge of making sure everything went right at the wedding. It was a big wedding. I'm telling you, you'll see in a moment why I'm saying that. And so there was a guy in charge, probably not a family member, could have been, but probably not, and he didn't even know what had happened. To his little mind, Whoa, you saved the best wine to last. That's not the way you do it. Nobody had communicated to him that water had been poured in pots and wine had come out and so on. So it's a miracle that not everybody understood, but his disciples did. His mother did. I'll tell you who really knew it were the servants who were serving the water to, as wine. They really knew it. And so Jesus performed this miracle, but it was the first of several, the smallest in some ways. I'm not diminishing its power or its uh, importance at all. I'm just saying not everybody present knew that it was happening, okay? And uh, he did not do it because of the expectation of his mother. He didn't do it, the language indicates, because his mother expected him to. Nothing wrong with doing what your mother expects unless it's contrary to the purposes of God and what we need in our lives and all that kind of thing. You gotta be careful, right? And so Jesus was not doing it because his mother expected. By the way, have you ever wondered why his mother was there? In fact, not only was she there, his brothers were there. The whole family. Jesus was invited, of course, and he was there. Do you remember when Mary was going to give birth to Jesus? She and Joseph had to leave someplace to go to Bethlehem. Where did they leave? Nazareth. They left Nazareth to go to Bethlehem. They were living in Nazareth, okay? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The eight days he was circumcised, and then uh, the 40th day he was dedicated in the temple in Jerusalem. And Bethlehem was only three miles from Jerusalem, so they'd walk there to do all that kind of stuff. And a month or two or whatever later, word came after the Magi that uh, 
I mean, Herod was going to do something terrible. And so an angel warned Joseph in a dream, go to Egypt. And they left for Egypt and were there for a long time. And eventually God said, come on back now. And where did they come to? Nazareth. And Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Now, you may not know this, but Nazareth was only three and three-quarters miles from Cana. In other words, this is the hometown of Mary and Jesus, for all practical purposes. Nazareth, actually. Cana was not all that big, but it was only three and three-quarters miles from Nazareth. It could have been someone Mary knew and knew well because she seemed to be a little bit of an authority there when she told the servants, whatever he says you do it, I mean, you know, if you're ahead of a wedding and some gal says, whatever these guys say, you, you, you do it, you might want to say to her, what business of it is you, you know, how is it your business? But it could be that she was really thought highly of. But the point I'm simply making is this. Jesus didn't do it because of his mother's expectation. Now, the reason she wanted it done was because someone she loved, that family, was facing difficulties. And the family that was facing difficulties uh, were, they themselves were discomforted by the fact that they'd run out of wine. And that was a discomforting thing. It was horrendously uh, flawed to run out of wine. Somebody didn't plan well. Uh, but what Jesus did was he performed the miracle, not because his mother expected it, because he was explaining something else. And that's in verse 11. This miracle was done so Jesus could explain who he really was. Not just the son of Mary. Ma'am, what have I to do with you? Mine hour has not yet come. When it does, I'll do divinely what needs to be done. The hour came shortly, and he changed the water to wine, and he was proving that he was God in human flesh. And his disciples, who did know them, the miracle happened, started believing on him immediately. Well, it's a good thing, because he had just been calling all of them to be disciples of his, to follow him, and he wanted, I think, to encourage them in the journey of the three years that were ahead, and so he changed the water to wine. Now that is, I think, the motive of the miracle. The scripture says it this way, the glory of the Lord was put on display. The word glory is the Greek word doxa. Now, we in English think of it as, oh, we want God to be pleased. If I glorify God, then he'll be pleased. That's not what the Greek word means. What the Greek word means is, God is seen to be present. Shekinah glory. The fire of God in the tabernacle and in the temple. The, the human perspective, the human perception of God's presence. The Shekinah glory. So, the glory of God means God is seen to be in it. So, if you pray for Steve, as I do, to preach for the glory of God, or to teach, for the glory of God on Sunday morning. What I'm really praying for is, God, when Steve's standing up there teaching the word, let the people see you as clear as crystal in what's being said, what's being taught. Let the people be directed to you. May your presence be the one that all of us 
are experiencing as the word of God's being taught. Or when someone singing a song, Sandy Patty sings a special. Or uh, Larry, uh, our worship leader, leads a the choir in a special. And somebody said, man, that brought glory to God. What they mean in the Greek language is God was seen to be present while they were doing it. Hallelujah. God is here. Does that make sense? That's why he did the miracle, the motive for it. Now, second thing I want you to look at is the making of this miracle. And what made it was a difficult situation. I've already mentioned this briefly, but it really was a difficult situation. They ran out of wine. The indication is the whole town was there because there were six water pots uh, and each of them held two to three firkins. A firkin is nine gallons. So if there's three gallons in each pot, there's 27 gallons in each pot. There were six of them. That's a little over 150 gallons. Yeah, that's how much water was there. By the way, this is just a little tidbit. Do you notice the scripture indicates they were stone pots? Stone water pots. You know why? Because clay water pots were never used for purification. These were pots that were used for purification, the washing of hands and the feet, and for other things in religious rituals. This even could have been, Bible scholars say, a, the home of one of the priests who ministered in the temple in Jerusalem, which wasn't all that far away. Uh, but we don't know for sure. But we do know they were stone pots. In Leviticus 11, all clay pots were seen to be, uh, 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 what am I trying to say? They, they are tainted because they're, they're not pure. They're not special. They're just common, ordinary. So they have to be crushed. Stone pots were special. They were holy. They were for holy waters. And uh, the people, however they'd been using them in this situation, the guests of the wedding were using them to wash their hands and their feet before they came in, and they were known to be in religious ceremonies used also. And when they were full, they held 27 gallons of water. And there were seven of them. And by the way, they were always full when they started. So the guests were washing their hands and their feet because they weren't full when the servants started. But my point is simply this. It was a difficult situation. It could be that the wedding was lasting for a week. We don't know that for sure, but that's the way it normally did. If it's the third day of the week, it could be that they've run out of wine way too early. Now, here's something I want to call your attention to. Do you notice that why they ran out of wine is never mentioned? Now, the bridegroom was in charge of having the wine there. And his name was Mud, if they run out of wine. Uh, I don't know who paid for the wine. I'm, I'm not into some of this stuff in those early weddings. But the fact is, nobody, who's to blame, is not even mentioned. Do you know, to me, that's one of the strongest elements in the midst of this miracle of God is that... Uh, Who's to blame is not even talked about in the midst of what God did in that difficult situation. I have done a lot of marriage counseling. I think I mentioned this to you one time. A lot of times I have a 
husband and wife come to me and they're having a difficult situation in their marriage and they want me to counsel them and I always start out with them together and uh, we'll talk for a while and I kind of pick up on things and then I'll take them one at a time, one at a time. And uh, never starting with one or the other, I just make a choice, a, a judgment in the moment, kind of arbitrary, but I'll start with one while the other one waits. Then we'll switch, okay? Now, the reason I do that is because I have to do something. Uh, let's say I'm talking to the wife first. The husband's out in the foyer. He's waiting. So I say to her, okay, now, ma'am, let's say that 80% uh, of the problems in your marriage your husband's responsible for. She usually says, well, it's closer to 90. <laughs> I understand. But let's just say 80%. That leaves 20. Now, I want to talk to you about only the 20%. I won't talk to you about the 80%. I won't talk to you about only the 20%. And we begin to work through, well, what is your responsibility in this? What is your problem in this? And we begin. Now, I take her out, bring the man in, set him down and say, sir, I want to talk to you about your problems. Now, let's say that 80% of the problems you're married is your wife's fault. He says, more likely 90. <laughs> so I know I'm... I'm hitting base. And I say, well, let's just say 20, and I'll deal with the 20. And what I do then is bring them together and help them see that marriage is like building a bridge. Each one is responsible for building their part of that marriage relationship. You can't build the other person's part, but one of the greatest tragedies in a relationship is when you get so upset that you will always blame the other person for the problems in the relationship and never really take responsibility for what you're responsible for. That's called dysfunctional, and you can never have a good relationship if either one is, is dysfunctional. It takes both healthily looking at their 20%, you know, you say, well, yeah, but you've only gotten 40% solved. Well, the other 60% was a figment of the imagination anyway. What you've done is wound up with solving issues. That's why I think it's kind of wonderful that who was responsible for running out of wine is never mentioned. And so there was a difficult situation. Now, notice... Uh, the second thing is that there was determined obedience. You remember the mother of Jesus said to him, or to the servants, now whatever he says to you, you do it. Okay? All right. So Jesus says to the servants, now we don't know how long later, but a little later he says to the servants, okay guys, go fill the six water pots with water. Fill them to the brim. That means they weren't full. They'd been washing their hands and their feet. So they did. They filled them to the brim. Okay? Now, here's the thing I want you to see. Whether or not the water turned to wine was not the responsibility of the servants. It was their responsibility to do what they were responsible for. All right, now let me translate it. Let's say one of my kids has a struggle in a marriage and it looks like a marriage is going to fall apart and uh, man I'm praying for a miracle oh God save this marriage don't let it fail 
Now, I want to see God work a miracle. And by the way, it'll take a miracle in some of those situations. Except if I look for God to work a miracle and I never look at what I'm responsible for in that relationship, I'll never really be in the position where the miracle of God would be everything it could be for me or could not be if it doesn't happen. For example, were this to happen to one of our kids, Mary and I would sit down and we'd talk about, okay, what are we responsible for? Well, one of the things we're responsible for is to love them both. Owe no man anything except to love one another. So does that mean I quit loving an ex-daughter-in-law or an ex-son-in-law, whichever the case might be? No. No. We always have believed that when your children bring someone into your heart, they don't have the privilege of removing them from your heart. And so we have a responsibility to love both. That's what we're responsible for. Suppose this were to happen and uh, we would realize that our responsibility is to forgive both. Whoa, well, who's to blame for the marriage failing? Well, you know, I've never known a marriage fall apart genuinely, generally, because of only one. It, you know, there's some problems in both. I'm not talking about the things that are immoral, dishonest, illegal, all that. I'm talking about the normal, natural human relationships we have struggles with, okay? Um, so we have to forgive both. We're responsible for forgiving. By the way, you do know, don't you, that you're responsible, and I am as a Christian, to forgive whether they've asked for forgiveness or not. Because what we do is forgive because we've been forgiven. We don't wait to see if they're willing to ask forgiveness. We give forgiveness. We love them. We give forgiveness. A third thing might be this, that we don't take sides. Whoa, wait a minute. One of them is my kid. Oh, now wait a minute. Do you want to really do what you're responsible for doing? As a parent with adult children who are facing problems in their own marriage... You don't take sides. I'm not talking about marriages where something's immoral, illegal. I'm talking about the normal struggles with trying to make it go. You don't take sides. The last thing I'd mention is simply this. Uh, you're responsible to let them alone. <laughs> Man, that's hard for me. I like to jump in the middle of it. And if they'd only listen to me and straighten up, you know. But look, you love them. You forgive them. You don't take sides, and you don't interfere with them. What happens? Am I saying a miracle will happen? Now, I'm going to tell you, it happened to us. We were looking for a miracle, and the son and his wife. And the answer is, no, a miracle didn't happen. The marriage ended. They both have remarried. They have two children in that first union. They both are remarried. But can I tell you this? That was 20 years ago. Can I tell you this? We love our present daughter-in-law with all of our hearts. We love our ex-daughter-in-law with all of our hearts. She's remarried. She's the mother of two of our grandchildren. She has a son. He calls us Grams and Papaw. When she met the boy she married later, after our son married and we embraced our new daughter-in-law, this ex-daughter-in-law called and said, uh, I've got a 
strange, I told Jerry, the guy she married, got a strange request of you. If you get serious, you're going to have to pass muster with my ex-mother and father-in-law. And we met with him for three hours at Cracker Barrel and talked about marriage. So, is that what I would have thought? No. Was there a miracle that happened back then? No. But I am saying this. Whether miracles happen or not, we're to fill the six water pots. We're to do what we're responsible to do. Now, you translate that to any relationship you're in that has a difficult situation, and I think that's one of the lessons in this passage of Scripture. The servants did what they were supposed to do. And ladies and gentlemen, it's never bad to do what you're supposed to, whether miracles happen or not, because you will have been obedient in the midst of it all. Am I right? Now, I'm almost finished. Follow with me here. Um, and so, um, by the way, I, I love this whole thing applied in a different way. I, I just believe miracles and responsibility to thank God in the midst of all of it are, are two sides of the same coin. You can ask God for miracles and trust him. Uh, Greg Hatterberg and, and his wife, Lisa, he's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Lisa has had uh, uh, multiple sclerosis for years and years in a wheelchair. She died last spring. Many years, 17 years in a row, they went to church. Wheel down, he did her, to the front row. And they worshiped God at church in Dallas. His testimony was he just he had asked God for a miracle, asked God for a miracle, but he knew he was to be to that woman whatever God intended him to be, no matter the situation. And he was. One day, a fellow came up to him and said this. She, that is Lisa, is going to be healed today, tonight. She's going to run to the door and greet you. God told me so. All right. Now, anybody here doubt that God can do that if he wants to? Anybody doubt God has done that on occasion and will do it in the future? Here's Greg Hatterberg's response. I believe with all my heart God can heal Lisa. I pray that when I come home, she runs to greet me. If she does, you will be the first person I call and we'll praise God together. But if I get home and she's sitting in that wheelchair and she says, have you had a good day? Another miracle will have happened. God's grace is sufficient for our lives, whatever happens. Ladies and gentlemen, I love that. Nobody doubts God's ability to interject a new cause with a new effect. He's seen present when it happens. Ask him for it. But don't ever fail to fill the water pots. Now, I close with this. That's the, the motive in the miracle, the making of the miracle, now the message in the miracle. Why was it done? I've already said to show you that God's presence in Christ was real. It's really done because Jesus is simply saying, I can, you know, 
I can be present. He was at the wedding. I can. They put water in. We don't know when the miracle happened. We don't know whether that water turned to wine as they were pouring it into the six pots or after it was into the six pots or when Jesus said, now take and give to everybody, whether it became wine as they dipped it out. We just don't know when it became wine. But the fact is, it did. And Jesus is simply saying, if a difficult situation needs something miraculous, I can. I can. I'm able. Okay? And I love you. He's saying that too. He was there. His presence was saying that. So the question comes, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? Every time. In every difficult situation. Every struggling marriage. Why doesn't he? Well, it could be timing. In other words, maybe more time is needed for obedience to happen. Your obedience or my obedience, or maybe some obedience on the part of those who are needing a miracle. Sometimes it's just a matter of timing. Other time, it's a matter of will. In other words, maybe God is looking for them to come to a place where they're willing to ask God for whatever. So it can come to a thing of will, but it always comes to a thing of purpose. In other words, what is God's purpose? Is it for Lisa to rise up out of a wheelchair and to walk? Or is it for her to stay in that wheelchair living in the sustaining grace of God? She died last April. For her, it was the latter. That was God's purpose. For others... There's a different purpose. My point is simply this. Always know that you can pray according to the purposes of God and you'll never be in the wrong doing it. Jesus did. If possible, let this cup pass. Send angels if possible. Nah. Nevertheless, any of that, your purpose be done. And he died. So the marriage feast of Cana, the water turning to wine, is the first to introduce the power of God, the dynamite of God, the awesomeness of God, and that God is really present. Not everybody knew it happened, but 2,000 years later, we know it happened. We have the record, and it might teach us some things about what God's doing in our lives. Does that make sense? All right, I'm going to quit, and uh, next Sunday we'll pick up here, and I'm going to talk to you about living life naturally and the supernaturally, or maybe living life supernaturally and the natural. I'll explain myself next time, okay? All right, here's our benediction. God bless you. Get out of here. Shake five hands and hug two necks, okay? You're dismissed. We'll see you next Sunday. <laughs>